Last week, amid growing pressure, the Canadian government suspended vaccine mandates for domestic and outbound international air and rail travel, as well as for the federal civil service and the federally regulated transportation sectors. But this debate is far from over, as the government stated that it will not hesitate to re-implement vaccine mandates in the future. The question is, is such a policy backed by science? A recent peer-reviewed paper in the BMJ Global Health Medical Journal argues that vaccine mandates are, in fact, scientifically questionable and likely to do more societal harm than good. My guest today is the lead author on that paper, and he hopes to trigger a broader public conversation about the public policy response to COVID-19. If, if public health and government wants to build trust, okay, one core aspect of that is to admit when you went too far, when you made mistakes, when you didn't do things you know, in, in the most proportionate manner, let's say. And is the medical community going to do that? Is the government going to do that? I, I don't know. Kevin Bardosh is a social and political scientist and an expert in global public health. He's an affiliate assistant professor at the University of Washington, an honorary lecturer at the Edinburgh Medical School, and has worked on Zika control in Haiti and on Ebola in Africa. Kevin Bardosh joins me to talk about the unintended consequences of COVID-19 vaccine policy. Kevin Bardosh is my guest. That's today on Lean Out. Kevin, welcome to Lean Out. Thank you for having me, Tara. So nice to speak with you again. I want to speak a little bit about the situation in Canada later in this episode. But first, I want to dig into the paper. And I should say, you know, your co-authors on this paper, pretty esteemed group of people involved in public health. So I'll just mention a few. Trudeau Lemons from the University of Toronto's Faculty of Law with cross appointments, the Dalalana School of Public Health, Faculty of Medicine and Joint Center for Bioethics. Your group also includes Salman Kajavji, Professor of Global Health and Social Medicine at Harvard Medical School, and Stefan Baral of Johns Hopkins. Now, this is a Twitter success story in that your group found each other on that platform. Talk to me about the goals that brought this group together to author this paper. Yeah, thanks. And that's a great, great introduction. I think the, the goals were that essentially that we were seeing this policy momentum, right, in one direction. It's kind of like a titanic ship. Once you make a policy decision, uh, let's say to mandate a vaccine, you start going in that direction. And as you have contradictory evidence in this case, quite substantial amount of contradictory evidence that really did emerge in mid-2021, it was quite clear that the vaccines were not durable or sterilizing, right? That you could be vaccinated and still get infected with COVID. Um, but the ship kept on sailing in one direction. And so I think all of us were, were trying to shout out saying, look, this is, this is not completely science-based, right? And there's also going to be a, a tremendous amount of harm from these policies. And on one, on, on one hand, we were seeing this from the discussion on Twitter, which is, you know, uh, it has its limitations for good and evil. Um, it does provide a good pulse of public sentiment, right, in, in certain demographic groups, depending who you're following. So we were seeing, you know, on the one hand, this, this sort of drive towards, towards suspicion, towards anger, 
people being fired from their jobs, for example. And also, I think, a, a solidification of power theories about you know, why government is really using these heavy-handed hammers. Um, I mean, this came. We came out of lockdown, right? An unprecedented policy lever for public health, and then we went into vaccine mandates. If you kind of broadly try to parcel out the pandemic response, both of those are 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 really harsh, uh, you know, um, interventions, and they have a lot of externalities and harms. So I think broadly, we we felt like that wasn't being discussed adequately in the public arena. Also amongst our colleagues in global health departments and in the university system more generally. So I think all of us sort of felt it was our responsibility to put together a piece expressing those viewpoints. So that's kind of the original, I think. I mean, obviously, I'm speaking for myself, but I think that holds true for, for everyone. Mm-hmm. And and to set this conversation up for listeners, this is a paper that that puts forward a set of hypotheses that cover four domains: behavioral psychology, politics and law, socioeconomics, and the integrity of science and public health. Now, the purpose of the paper, as I understood it, is to start a public conversation around these topics and to outline potential areas of study for others in this field. It looks at a dozen unintended consequences of vaccine mandates, takes the position the mandates are scientifically questionable, likely to do more harm than good. Walk me through, if I'm understanding all of that correctly, walk me through the main reasons why you've taken this position. Yeah, so I think the main position is that um, we, we do have vaccine mandates, right, in, in our societies. Most of those are for schools, for kids. Those vaccines have been safety tested for many, many years. People are comfortable with them. And those mandates are typically implemented during moments of political calm. Okay. So where the national temperature is, is, is low. Um, and also, you know, there is some controversy about school mandates, especially ones like in Australia over the last couple of years where they've reduced the ability for exemptions. Um, so there are controversies about vaccine mandates uh, from a policy standpoint, but we have never had adult mandates for, for a vaccine, especially like if you think about it, you're employed, you've been hired already, and then your employer comes and says, now we have this new condition that you need to get this vaccine or else you're going to be fired. So there's a bunch of sort of legal and uh, from a uh, from an employee standpoint, um, but also just from a population level, um, very novel like behavioral and social issues and political issues that these vaccine mandates kind of solidified around. Um, so I think that's that's important to appreciate. This is unprecedented. It's, it is, on, on the one hand, a political – it dovetails into a political project, right, which is we have this vaccine and we are going to take the coercive mandate strategy here rather than saying, hey, look, everyone, this is the disease and we haven't done a good job, especially in Canada, of actually presenting to the public the age distribution of COVID in terms of mortality statistics. We've ramped up fear for, for two years. The media has played a huge um, I would say somewhat deceptive role in doing that, and has there's a lot of externalities and negative consequences to the way the media has, has talked about the pandemic. But th- that was a political decision to go down the mandate route, and I just don't think it was wise. I don't think it was necessary. Um, and we see with a lot of these societal crises that we have, whether it was 9-11. So I think about the pandemic as a societal crisis, and my best analogs are 9-11, the financial crisis, and then the rise of, of Trump. Um, and when I say that, I mean the response from the left and from the right in that in that sort of social polarization. And in all of, all of those instances, a lot of the policies that we end up taking do they have their own social life, they have their own consequences, and they they often sort of 
just snowball and, and make things worse. <laughs> um, so I think the vaccine mandates sort of fit into that. I also think just from a scientific and medical standpoint, people were willing to be vaccinated for COVID. There was quite a large, you know, certainly over 50, 60, 70% of people who were willing to voluntarily be vaccinated. The mandates, and this we do cite these studies in our in our paper, tended to have the most impact for younger people. So those under 30 or under 40 who, you know, looking at the epidemiological data just thought, okay, well, I don't have a very high risk of COVID, so I'm not going to get vaccinated. Or I've already had COVID, so I don't want to get vaccinated. Um, but those types of considerations weren't built into the vaccine policies. So they didn't consider uh, natural immunity or prior infection. They didn't consider age-based risk. Um, people's health status. So if you have an autoimmune condition or if you have, uh, you know, we have huge numbers of environmental illnesses that we don't understand fully in our in our society right now. Um, I personally think there's a, a strong connections with, with chemicals that we have in our environment. Um, and people that, that suffer from those illnesses tend to have uh, more suspicion of the medical profession, et cetera. So anyhow, there's all these different reasons why people wouldn't want to get vaccinated. But we said, no, we're going to have a one-size-fit-all fit, fit all policy because the vaccine stops transmission. That's mm -hmm. how it was sold. If, if you don't accept that as a premise, all of these policies don't make much scientific sense. And the problem is that was clearly shown to, to have not been the case. And actually it was, it was known beforehand. And I'm very curious to see in retrospect going forward, how much Pfizer and some of the other pharmaceutical companies knew about this, when they knew about it. Um, and if they selectively presented their evidence to government if they if they deceived government i think that's a very important question that needs to be uh, asked and let's let's dig into some of the actual unintended consequences that you explore in the paper. Last time you and I spoke, we touched on the issue of cognitive dissonance, which I very much relate to. Today I want to start by talking about reactants. What is reactants and how does it operate in this context? Right. So reactance is the, the idea that if you're going to try to take away freedoms from me, uh, I'm going to respond by trying to get freedom back. And maybe I won't be able to get freedom back in the same way that you're taking it away from me, but I will try to reassert my personhood, my dignity, and my agency as a human being. Um, so that would be, I mean, a perfect example of that would be the trucker convoy movement in Canada, which we... Ironically, we wrote this paper right before the convoy. So we, we put it on the preprint server, I think, the week that the convoy started. Mm -hmm. um, so in many regards, I see that as, as a, uh, that, that we were, we were f effectively feeling the social pulse. Not just in Canada, right? This was going, these, these protest movements were going on in Europe, everywhere where there were uh, these mandates. There were uh, street protests, um, some I mean, not very many of them turn violent, actually. I would say that that's a mischaracterization in the media. Um, but there was this protest movement. And I would say that, that that is a reflection of that reactance effect. We're going to take to the streets. This is unjust. These policies are not fair. Um, we don't agree with them. Uh, so, uh, And then, of course, there's all sorts of different ways that people do that. And I think in this context, um, it's clear that in Canada... There is a group of people who were people who were negatively affected by these mandates, who lost their jobs, um, who were socially ostracized, and and even lots of individuals who were vaccinated and just felt like this is a step too far. This is this is going in a direction that I don't feel politically comfortable with. And of course, Justin Trudeau, I think, plays a big role in that. He is a left populist. 
I, I don't think that polit politically he has done an incredible amount to make this into a political issue, right? So on the campaign trail, he he was very he was constantly referring to you know anti-vaxxers as right-wing uh, agitators. I mean that's not a direct quote, but he was inflaming the topic um, immensely for political gain, and I think it did sadly work for him. And the NDP also came alongside with him to support these mandates. Now, the, the irony is that as the trucker convoy was taking place, there were more and more studies every day um, coming online showing that Omicron was infecting unvaccinated and vaccinated at the same rate. So from again, from a transmission standpoint, the Freedom Convoy was following the science uh, at that time. And that's now going to be very difficult or impossible for certain people in the medical community and the liberal establishment, what I mean by that is you know, people uh, with the liberals in, in Canada and the NDP, to admit um, because, and the media has played a big role in, in sort of inflaming this social polarization or this notion that the Freedom Convoy was about these sort of mythological stereotypes, right? Mm -hmm. um, it was a diverse movement of lots of different types of people. Sure, it had a lot of working class individuals in Canada, which now somehow is equated with the far right. I don't buy that narrative. I think that narrative itself is actually going to create the types of social polarization that we have south of the border where I live, um, which is also sort of a dangerous outcome of, of, the, of the mandates. And we discussed that in the political polarization section. I mean, just returning to stigma for a moment. You mentioned the the feelings of uh, unvaccinated Canadians. I get letters all the time from unvaccinated Canadians who feel incredibly hurt, who feel demonized and ostracized. I want to quote from this section of your paper, quote, political leaders singled out the unvaccinated, blaming them for the continuation of the pandemic, stress on hospital capacity, the emergence of new variants, driving transmission to vaccinated individuals, the necessity of ongoing lockdowns, masks school closures, and other restrictive measures. Now, stigma used to be something that public health really worked to avoid. What happened to you? That's a great question and one that I'm grappling with still to this day. Um, and just to sort of give you a sense of the reaction to the paper, which helps to contextualize this statement. So it's been shared over 10,000 times on Twitter, um, but I haven't I've noticed that established people in global health have, mo for the most part, stayed away from sharing it or reaching out to me about this. And I think that that uh, holds true during the pandemic. Heterodox or, or dissenting views has, for the most part, been uh, kind of relegated to the sideline. And yeah. um, so the anti-stigma movement, I mean, that comes out of HIV AIDS research for the last 30, 40 years. And yeah, it, it seems, I don't know. I mean, I have different ideas about this, but I don't feel... Like I've been able to really strongly come to a conclusion. Um, I think people respond differently when they're thinking about um, marginalization of others. So, oh, st street uh, drug addicts or prostitutes that have HIV. Oh, we, we need to have an anti-stigma approach. We need to think about human rights. It, it, it's sort of okay. And then you sort of set up this dichotomy of the of the left who are advocating for that and the right who are against it, right? And and so it sort of falls along these classic political lines that people feel comfortable with, the ideological lines. I think what the pandemic has done is it's shredded those typical ideological lines that people have. Um, and so individuals don't know how to respond 
to that. I, if you if you're a, a progressive, and and most people in the public health world are tend to be leaning on the progressive side politically. So if you're if you're on that side, politically, you know, ideologically, and you suddenly now have to defend uh, people who support Trump, Trump supporters who are who are not vaccinated, saying I'm not going to get vaccinated. This is a global plot to bring in the globalist coup and sort of take over nation states. You're you're defending that sort of those individuals, right? From a scientific standpoint, it makes sense. But I think people have a hard time putting their ideology to one side. And so mm-hmm. I think that's what we've sort of suffered through here. Um, I also think that there's a lot of career consequences to speaking up about the harms of vaccine mandates. And when, when I say this, I, I also mean lockdowns. I mean, in the whole regalia of restriction-based public health, which is what we moved from. And essentially, you hit the nail on the head. We went, or a large, you know, most of the community in public health, especially global public health, went from anti-stigma, anti-marginalization, equity, human rights as a framework, to suddenly, we need we need to support restrictions. We need to support governments having these hammers over individuals, and we need to maximize compliance. That's the that's the transition that sort of took place, and um, yeah, I think it's been um, confusing for a lot of people. Mm. Indeed, and I mean, you also write about distrust. Uh, a recent Canadian survey showed that fifty two percent of interviewees believed that official government accounts of events can't be trusted. You also touch on social and economic inequality. I, this is so interesting. You did a recent event at. The, for the University of Toronto, and you were joined by a physician from the shelter system there. He spoke about how the vaccine mandates resulted in homeless people being turned away from businesses and excluded from warm spaces in the yeah. dead of winter. How else can vaccine mandates potentially exacerbate economic and social inequalities? Right. So there's, there's it's important to distinguish between the vaccine mandates as in the pressure to get vaccinated and then the way that these tools are used in society. So if you're a vaccinated elderly person, you, you might not be able to get a, a passport on your phone. You don't have a phone. You just don't understand how that can work, right? So I think there's been videos from Italy, for example, that I've seen where elderly people are denied access to a bus because they just don't even know how to how the system works. Um, then there's also, and we cite this in the paper, cases in Israel where Palestinians who are vaccinated are being denied access to the, you know, crossing borders because it's, it's, it can be used as a tool to sort of coerce people and, um, impose your will on individuals, right? Even though in this case with the Palestinians, the paper was saying, well, these are actually Palestinians, yeah, who are, who are vaccinated. Um, I also think there's just, there's a strong correlation between lack of trust and historical marginalization. So when you look at vaccine studies about trust, people who are socially, uh, socioeconomically marginalized um, or have been treated unfairly by the medical profession, and I'm actually very interested in this group of people who just, they don't trust pharmaceutical companies because they've, their lives have been destroyed by pharmaceutical products. And there's quite a lot of them in the United States. This is pretty well documented, you know, with federal fines of billions of dollars for, you know, thinking of the, the drug opioid crisis as one sort of contemporary example. Um, and so these individuals are just less trustful of the state. They're less trustful of corporate monopolies or corporate uh, you know, pharmaceutical companies. And so they're going to be less likely to be vaccinated. And so essentially creating a mandate, you are penalizing this cross-section of, of people who have less trust in established narratives or established 
policy. Um, so in, in, in a way, you are selecting, you know, and, and sort of very clearly ostracizing that group of people. Hmm. And I, I wonder, too, about um, just getting back to the reception of the paper. So one of the criticisms I've seen is that the paper did not provide enough alternative policy. So uh, Professor Bill Bogart, for example, made right. this point at, at your event at the University of Toronto. And it, I, I am against the vaccine mandates. I've been very vocal about that. This is a counter argument that I hear a lot. Like, how else could we have done it? How do you respond to that argument? Yeah, so I would say again, the the studies that are that are online right now show that there was a huge number of people who are willing, to, especially high risk individuals, who are willing to go and get vaccinated voluntarily. Uh, in fact, we haven't focused enough on those high risk, vulnerable people for booster shots in Canada and then also the United States. So I actually think the mandate has detracted from prioritizing those most high risk groups. Um, I would also say. Uh, I would ask the question to to those individuals, like, what level of vaccination is acceptable to you? 100%, 90%, 70%, 60%? I mean, if the goal is to prevent adverse outcomes, clinical outcomes, focusing on the high on the, on the high risk vulnerable groups should have been the policy from the beginning, rather than detracting. I think detracting from that and saying, okay, we're going to treat this virus as if it's not explicit, but implicitly, the risk is distributed equally across society, and hence everyone needs to get vaccinated. I just don't think that that was wise public health. Um, and and we sort of it, vaccines are an interesting technology right now in our society. Ideologically, it's almost it, it sort of has a totem status, right? Because if you question vaccines, you're seen as an anti-vaxxer or conspiracy theorist, which to me is equivalent to being called like a communist during the Red Scare. You're just you're you're discredited from the beginning. It's hard to sort of recover from that type of accusation. Um, but vaccine science is very complicated. It changes over time. We've seen that in the pandemic, myocarditis risk being one thing that was downplayed uh, at the beginning. People who were who advocated or said, "Look, there's a there's a safety signal here," were uh, you know they were uh, dragged over the mud in Israel and elsewhere, and they were shown to be to be correct, right? Um, so even today, I, I think there's some serious questions about, for example, if you're uh, under 30, right, what's your myocarditis? What's the relative benefit or, or and cost to getting two or three doses of current mRNA vaccine if you, uh, especially if you've had a prior infection, right? Those types of cost-benefit analyses haven't been, they've been challenging to do. And there's, yeah, there's a lot of outstanding questions to to that. So I would say, there's yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot of uh, questions, mm -hmm. and also let's let's just spend a moment on the situation in Canada. So the vaccine mandates for domestic and outbound international travel have been suspended, along with mandates for the federal public service and the federally regulated transportation sectors. This just happened this past week, but some mandates remain. The city of Toronto, for example, has not lifted its mandate for its workforce. So this is far from over, and the government has indicated that it will not hesitate to re-implement vaccine mandates in the fall, for example, if necessary. What do you make of this? I think we're continuing to follow this extreme version of the precautionary principle that isn't, it's not sufficiently evidence-based to justify it. It, it. it flies in the face of the, of the notion of proportionality in public health ethics, which is that you are going to impose liberty restrictions to a minimum, 
right? To maximize the positive impact and minimize the negative impacts of those policies. I think that we've substituted the proportionality principle for this extreme precautionary approach, which implicitly assumes that we should not have any COVID cases, right? And, and any COVID mortality is unacceptable. So we're still living in a world where zero COVID has, we haven't resolved the tension between zero COVID and the herd uh, immunity sort of debate that's been going on. And I think Ontario is similar to Australia or New Zealand in many regards with that current conversation. Um, that the idea that you're just going to, first of all, it's suspended. So it's not it's not finished, right? It's still on the books. They can reinstate it whenever they want. It's suspended. So that's going to, I mean, it's not giving people a lot of confidence in one regard that we're moving on past this discussion. It's also clear that, I mean, the, the truckers, they're, they're still under the, the mandate, right? And that has also to do with the, the fact that the U.S. does have a vaccine mandate, right? Um, and actually, when this was going on, I, I, I did tweet, when the convoy was starting, I had a thought of just sort of thinking about politically, how could this be resolved? And I thought it would have been great if Biden would have called Justin Trudeau as the convoy started to set up its protest and said, hey, Trudeau, look at this new science. I'm, we're, the U.S. is going to stop there or they're going to maintain the exemption for the truckers going into Canada. So why don't you do the same and then we can sort of resolve this? I thought that would have been a great political move. Um, obviously, it wasn't taken. So, you know, everyone, it would have been a win-win for everyone, but oh, well, it wasn't, it wasn't done. So now we have this situation where, and even right now, I mean, if you're an unvaccinated person in Canada, you travel out to, let's say, uh, to see somebody in the U.S., your family member, you come back to Canada, you have to quarantine for 14 days. Mm. So there's still these sort of penalties. This has nothing to do with, with, with a science-based policy. This has everything to do with a punitive political vendetta that Trudeau has. And I mean, the conversation in the Canadian Parliament is mind-blowing, right? I mean, the, this sort of obfuscation and, and this sort of uh, sort of double think that's going on is very worrying. So I'm quite concerned about the direction that things are, things are taking um, in, in Canada. And I did, I do actually think that there needs to be an investigation, uh, like a, a a commission set up to investigate not just COVID mandates, but lockdowns and other restrictions that governments have taken, including Canada. But we are living in this very polarized world where there's two extreme camps, and it's it's hard to know how those are going to be reconciled. Because, I mean, what percentage of Canadians today still think that the vaccines prevent you know prevent a large amount of transmission of Omicron? I would suspect it's probably twenty percent. I don't I don't know. I haven't seen any studies to suggest that. But mm. um, so there's these 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 sort of stories that we've told ourselves over two years. And the question is, are people going to be able to revisit those stories? And in the paper, also, we in the, the last section, Integrity of Science and Public Health, we rather provocatively say, you know, if, if public health and government wants to build trust, okay, one core aspect of that is to admit when you went too far, when you made mistakes, when you didn't do things, you know, in, in, in the most proportionate manner, let's say. And is the medical community going to do that? Is the government going to do that? I, I don't know, right? And in Trudeau's ideological world, the people who, the 10% of adults in Canada who are unvaccinated are sort of far right extremists who probably have, you know, racist views. And they are sort of the Canada that should be left behind. And I think those are just not 
this rhetoric of a national leader who wants to lead a, a Canada of tolerance and multiculturalism that I that I grew up with, having been born in Montreal um, and grown up there. So, yeah, I think it's it's worrying. And just lastly, I want to pose a question to you. You on Twitter recently uh, made the point, you, you argue that the consensus is emerging, that lockdowns and restrictions did more harm than good. And you pose a question to researchers, and that is, why did this happen? And why did so many smart people go along with it? So I ask you that. Why did so many smart people sign on to vaccine mandates? Uh, so great question, right? <laughs> and that, that Twitter comment was also a question to myself. I mean, I, Twitter's an interesting place. Um, on the one hand, going back to this idea that vaccines are totems, vaccines are inherently good. There's no side effects for anybody, 100% safe. Everyone should get them. Why aren't you getting them? You know, it's just this very simplistic worldview, which just, we don't have that for any other pharmaceutical drug, any other lifestyle choice. We always have this nuanced approach and we consider people's life circumstances, but we don't have that for vaccines. It's become part of this sort of very simple, good and bad sort of dichotomy. Um, on the one hand, I think that liberal institutions jumped on board to this precautionary or to use um, Jonathan Hyde's term safetism, right? So where safety is the highest value, safety is a virtue in and of itself that trumps any other consideration for policy or for social life or for you know meaning in, in human existence. Um, so there's some of that there. And there was a lot of career pressure for people to fall into line and to not speak up against these measures the classic idea of what we call groupthink, right? Sort of group psychology. Um, I also think that a lot of individuals who held positions of authority were in the higher economic stratus. So they actually, you know, benefit, they got to redo their yards during lockdown. They got to have their kids uh, attend, you know, language classes online. And they, they had sort of a vacation for a period of time. But, you know, not everyone did. So, so we have this... Yeah, kind of clash right now between the liberal establishment and the working class who still deliver all of our food and move our trucks around the country, um, who take care of our kids in daycare and who stock our shelves in supermarkets. And those individuals had a very different time with these restrictions. And when I say that lockdowns had more harm or the restriction-based philosophy has had more harm than good, I'm also thinking about this at a global level. So mm. it's clear that what happened is we had Wuhan lockdown. Then we had Italy locked down. And then you had a global domino effect across every country in the world, no matter whether it was, you know, Somalia or Haiti and, you know, Iceland. Everyone sort of followed this for at least three, four months. Um, and the evidence from low and middle income countries is clear that COVID was not a major cause of mortality. It didn't kill a lot of people in, in most of sub-Saharan African countries or Haiti, where, where I actually work. Um, but it had huge amounts of economic effects, you know, people being, children being out of school for up to a year plus, where school is the only source of, of education or safety or food. A lot of women dropping out of school, uh, having teenage pregnancies, and those individuals are never going to go back to school. Right? So it's disrupted a whole generation, and it has had impacts in very different ways depending on the country and the demographic group. So you can't really extract the notion of lockdown or restrictions in Canada from this global policy effect. 
And you know, for example, Oxfam had a report that came out just as the um, Davos sort of billionaire class were meeting in Switzerland a couple of weeks ago, and they estimated that 160 plus million people are going to be thrown back into poverty, extreme poverty, because of the pandemic. Now, I think it's interesting that Oxfam mentions the pandemic and not lockdowns or not restrictions or not the economic crisis that's been driven by lockdowns. I still think that there's a reluctance to 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 call out lockdowns as a failed policy experiment. And of course, there are some places where you can point and say, for example, Australia or New Zealand, where it was a beneficial, it had a beneficial effect. And there is a lot of nuance to the conversation if you want to think about, okay, lockdown for the first month, let's say, when we don't understand the virus. Mm. Um, but the age distribution, okay, and the mortality, or, or sorry, the, the, the comorbidities that are related with the virus, that was known pretty quick. It was known in April of 2020, all right, what kind of virus we were sort of dealing with. And we had all sorts of obscene or strange um, interventions, like you know, telling people they can't go outside and exercise, or closing off basketball courts. Um, actually, you want to exercise, you want to go out into the sun um, and be be healthy. But instead, people were locked in at home. And what did they do? Well, they became further addicted to video games, to screens, um, to self isolation. Mm -hmm. um, with all of its incumbent effects, domestic violence, you know, suicide, psychological harm. Um, so I find it incredible that even be the term lockdown, uh, you know, it emerges out of out of a criminal system, a penal system, right? You lock people down, and yet we are using it to protect our health. I think it's a little bit of an ir ironic term to use. Mm. Well, it's lots of questions to be asked in the coming years, and uh, I'm so glad that you are out there asking them. And uh, I really appreciate you coming on the show today. Thanks for having me, Tara, and I appreciate it. Lean Out is hosted and produced by myself, Tara Henley. If you liked what you heard, please consider subscribing to my Substack at tarahenley.substack.com. 